Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. I am very excited this week to have a very special, inspiring leader. She's someone that I've had the pleasure of knowing for a couple of years and have working alongside with her and her organization. And for me, she encapsulates what inspiring leadership is about, that humility, humanity, and a lovely sense of humor. So without further ado, I'll hand you over and let her explain who she is. Great. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited to talk with you and um, maybe share some things with the audience. My name is Renee Yoakum. Uh, I'm the EVP for Customer and Culture at Remitly. And if you haven't heard of Remitly, um, our vision, we're a fintech company that we went public uh, almost a year ago now with a vision to transform the lives of immigrants and their families by providing the most trusted financial services on the planet. And we're really just getting started in that mission, um, but primarily we focus today on remittances and helping, um, helping immigrants send money back to their loved ones and their families and the countries that they've come from. So it's a beautiful mission. We're a very values-driven organization, and it's like my privilege this late in my career to work uh, in such purposeful work. So with that, Jonathan, I'm excited to be on the Inspiring Leadership podcast, and I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you, Renee. And, and it really is very exciting working with you and your colleagues because uh, to find an organization that, that, like you, is commercially astute, but yet has a real sense of mission that you often only see in a charity, but you really believe about this, this whole focus as part of your life, really, customer, um, customer success. You don't even call it customer satisfaction. You, know, you, want, you want to have customer success, but you genuinely really... It's, it's through the DNA of your organization. You genuinely care about the customers. You know, your, your CEO, Matt, he'll be on calls like you will be with customers to hear what their real issue is. I rarely know that where executives actually get on the calls where people are saying, I've got this problem. Can you really help me? And so no wonder you've gone from 11 years from a startup to becoming a unicorn, which in fintech companies is, is the dream of all of And then a NASDAQ listing. And now you're a public company um, and, and we're all in you know, challenging times. But I think more than ever, immigrants need to send their money back to their families. And this is a brilliant way of doing it. So um, my first thought is, you know, you've been involved throughout your career in, as you say, developing customers and culture. And uh, together with you, we, we're trying to create this uh, inspiring leadership culture and this this sense of of. Um, one team that, that you have that inspires the others, they all work together. But what does inspiring leadership mean for you, Renee? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's helping people grow and succeed by painting a vivid picture of like where you're going together and why you're going there. And, and maybe I can relate it to Remitly in that, you know, the why we're going there is all about our customers and our customers are the inspiration for the work that we do. So it's actually so easy in, in this context to be inspiring, I think, because uh, our people are inspired so much by our customers and we certainly are as leaders. I'll just say like when I joined Remitly four years ago, I just had my Remitliversary, my, my anniversary there. Um, when I joined four years ago, I, I intellectually was, was intrigued by our customers and, and thought I was coming in to serve them. But I'll tell you, as I've gotten to know them better over the last four years by talking to customers, you know, like you say, every day, every week, um, and learning about their problems and the problems we need to help them solve, both their, their life problems, but also their problems in sending money home, they are just so inspiring. I mean, like even in these times of like macro hardship of inflation and potential recession, they're sending more money home. They're working multiple jobs. They work really hard to send a high percentage of their earnings back to their families and their communities. And like, that just means every day, I feel like I have to get up and be the very best 
person and leader and servant for them um, because they need the help and they're working so hard to do the work they're doing that it means I've got to deliver on my promises to them. And so I just find that inspiration cycle um, to be what fuels me. And I think what fuels a lot of the people that I work with too. Yeah. And remitly global in your name. It's very interesting that I've seen you, you know, get yourself around to all these different, both your offices, but but expanding it to so many different new avenues of different countries. So, you know, you've got offices in Managua and uh, in Manila and also in Krakow and in Cork and in London and obviously in Seattle. But the thing that's stuck in my mind and, and will for some time was that when I was with you in Seattle, you were running an event when, when I arrived where it was about customers and you were having people tell over videos and, and people were in the office the usual thing that you'd expect, you know, great, lovely customer stories, but you deliberately made much of it about the really bad experiences the customers had and that people were telling the story about the, the, the problems that they'd had. And therefore, everyone was thinking about how we can solve those problems for the customer. So this never happens again. And, and to be able to be vulnerable enough, strong enough to be vulnerable, that we've always, always a journey. We never finish. We've always got to improve. I, I love that fact that, you know, it, it isn't just said, you, customers really mean a lot to you and the inspiration and their inspiring stories. I, I found myself choking. I was almost crying with, with you know, some of the stories of what a difference it made to their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, thanks for pointing that out. And I, 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 I think that um, I have the privilege in my role to both serve customers and employees I lead both customer success and our people teams globally amongst some other things. But I love the the flywheel. We have this flywheel at Remitly that um, that is important and intentional on our part, which is customer is at the center of what we do. And we want to attract people to join Remitly who are attracted to serving our customers. Like that's a primary reason why, why they're there is for our mission. And therefore, by keeping those employees close to our customers, they're actually happier and more motivated. So not only do they provide more, you know, better products and services for our customers because they're closer to them, but they're also happier and more motivated and engaged and belong because that's why they join. So we have this like beautiful double flywheel and I get to live right in the intersection of that in my job every day, which is amazing. I mean, absolutely amazing. So I'm privileged to do that work and continue to grow and learn in order to both serve our customers and help our employees serve our customers. So, yeah. And, and it, it's, it, it's why I, I think I've enjoyed so much from it, probably more than nearly every other organization I've ever worked with, because you really engage everybody, you know, people like myself working with you, uh, the people who are in it, working with the customers. And then when your customers get it and see what you do, they get very excited about their their connection and their stickiness uh, with you as a as a as, you know a, a, an organization that does that but you're doing so many more things i mean it's lovely seeing the innovation and the growth of what you're going into okay um not just talking about customers life and their journeys uh, everybody's life and journey defines our leadership and and how have you reframed you've had a fascinating life and i'd love to hear a little bit about it in about five five ten minutes spend a bit of time on this please um about the experiences you've you've had and which individuals have shaped the leadership experience uh, your leadership experience into the person we find you today uh leading uh, in in remitly yeah great i mean i'm the um i'm the oldest of six kids um my uh, I'm six kids within six years. So really like close family. I was like mom too. And that was not a compliment in my family. I can tell you from my brothers and sisters. Um, but I think, you know, in a way I had to be a leader from a very early age uh, to, you know, both help my parents. And if you think of them as my managers, like I've, I've always managed up pretty well and, uh, and been, you know, supportive of the, the leaders that I worked for, including my parents and, um, and, you know, found ways to work with my peers and the people on my teams, like my brothers and sisters. So in a way, my family has been a metaphor for the way I think about leadership in a lot of ways. Um, I, I certainly grew a lot of confidence and 
um, you know, both in my family and, you know, early in my life, maybe overconfidence as I look back and maybe as we all do. And I, you know, in my early twenties, like just uh, had a somewhat arrogant confidence, probably thinking that I'd made all the right decisions. And if I just kept doing that, life was going to be great. Uh, and then life just hits you upside the head, right? In a in a beautiful way that makes you humble. Um, and then you crawl your way back up to what I call humble confidence, you know, which is what I feel like I have now, like a re, re-earned wisdom, but not overconfidence at all. And, uh, and a real understanding of what I can control and what I can't control in life. Um, I think that arc of life, from my perspective, just gets better and better. I mean, I'm 63. And, you know, I'd love to talk about aging a bit in this hour as well, because I love aging. I don't know what the right word for it is, but I love getting older. I love the the like widened aperture that comes to your life as you get to like see the ups and downs uh, that happen and you realize, oh my gosh, the, the downs are hard, but they don't last forever. It's okay. You're going to build the confidence and the resilience and the skills to get through it. Equally, the highs don't last forever either. And as you recognize that over time, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in a like peak moment here, or I am working with a super team right at this moment, and that is not going to last forever. And so how do I squeeze every drop of juice out of those beautiful moments as well? And so I just love that. Like, I feel so lucky to have, you know, a career that's like coming into 40 years now, friends for that long, colleagues for a really long time, and just the confidence that comes with time and wisdom and aging and and, and long way to go. Like I am nowhere near, you know, the person or the leader that I aspire, continue to aspire to be, um, you know, in terms of like, who's influenced me. I mean, there's so many, and I'll, I'll just talk about a few, like I had a leader uh, when I worked for a company called Attachment named Jeff Lyon, who was probably one of the first best leaders I had. And he just always taught me through stories. He would he would tell these amazing stories that I thought were just random. Then I'd go back to my office and realize, oh, he was teaching me a lesson in that story, but he never like told me. He always like told stories and let me come to the conclusion about how to apply it to my life. And I love that. I love that gentle wisdom that he shared that was never pointed, but always really clear when you thought about it. Um, I worked for a woman named Kathleen Hogan at Microsoft, who is now the head of uh, people at Microsoft. And she came from McKinsey. She is this amazing, like integrated leader of like really high IQ, big heart, lots of great gut instinct, um, you know, senses. And she just kind of, I got to see like what a holistic leader can really look like, especially as a woman. She's a, she's like can be tough, but she's also was very kind and always a great listener. And I loved, you know, kind of role modeling her in some ways. I worked for an amazing guy named Eduardo Rossini, who ran um, our small and medium business business at Microsoft. And he was so good about like getting close to the problems. Like, don't just sit in a conference room and make stuff up that you think the field is going to want or your customers are going to want. You got to go out there. Like he made us travel 50% of the time. And that was so humbling because a bunch of the stuff you thought sounded great back at corporate headquarters was not, you know, fit for prime time once you landed in the real world. And so I think he just taught that, that to me, I learned a ton from him. My, my last boss at Microsoft, who actually I just talked to last night, she's amazing, Denise Rendell. She's this just authentic leading from the intersection of like being intentional and also love. I, I honestly, it was the first times I heard love used in the workplace and really came to be able to find that at the center, but very intentional. It can be tough love. Like it was not always gentle love. It was love that, you know, wanted you to be as good as you could be and held a bar to like challenge you to get there. Right. Um, so that was great. And then I would just say like my last, you know, right now, my CEO, Matt Oppenheimer, who's the one of the co-founder and, and CEO of Remitly is amazing. I mean, he is a wise soul in a young body. I mean, he could be my son, maybe, <laughs> maybe even a generation further. Uh, and it's such a privilege to work for him and with him uh, because of his wisdom and kindness and vision for the customer. And I could tell you so many customer obsessed stories that start with Matt at the center. Um, I also think he has this amazing ability to connect with people, all kinds of people. And even as we scale, 
he finds way to, I don't know, bend the physics of time so that he really can have connections one-on-one and in groups with just a wide variety of people. And I'm inspired by that. Like if he can do it, I can find ways to, to connect with people through time more. So anyway, that's a little. Yeah. Bit well, so much uh, in that. And um, I'd love um, when we chat after the program to think about which of those people that you knew before, perhaps at Microsoft, we could get onto this series because they've probably got a hell of a story to tell them. Oh my gosh. If, they, if, they've, if they've influenced you, people like Denise or Eduardo or Kathleen, uh, they, they could influence others. And, and I do agree with you. I think Matt is probably, of all the CEOs I've ever had the privilege of working with, probably one of the most inspiring leaders. Uh, he does, I think, take one of the top spots. Um, and of course, it's, it comes in the family. You've got uh, Deanna, his aunt, and she's also amazing, inspiring, and been on this series like you. Um, let's talk about longevity, because it, it is something that really interests me. Uh, there I am, and I was uh, opening my cupboard and showing it to a, a client of mine who I was taking on a walking meeting. So he comes here with me. We go for a walk for a couple of hours with Archie, who's there chilled out at the back and a bit exhausted now. Uh, and then we have lunch together. I cook them a healthy lunch. And that was really good. And I was talking about longevity and he was really interested in that. So I opened my cupboard and there was my, my powders of NMN and resveratrol, you know, all about longevity and living longer. And I'm finding, he said, you know, how do you find your fitness now compared to you when you were a young army officer? I said, I see at 60, I think I'm fitter and healthier than I was when I was 25, because I now know what matters and the, the sort of eat, move, sleep, breathe, focus, prosper that will help my health span match my lifespan because I know too many people sadly who let their health span end 20 years before their lifespan ends so they're living in pain and discomfort and everybody's having to care for them they draw like a vortex to draw everybody else in to help them because they haven't taken care of themselves and they think well, it's, it's my life yeah but it's not your life because of course it affects everybody else who then has to care for you and the system that has to spend billions of dollars looking after people who haven't looked after their own health. Um, but, but what's your view about this whole idea of how we make the most of aging and longevity? What's your thoughts? Mm, I like the longevity word. That's maybe better than aging. Um, well, I mean, I, I don't think I'm an icon for the physical side of it. Like this is probably on, on the inspiring leadership compass as I was, you know, reading and preparing for talking with you a bit today definitely my a growth area for me and and has been a challenge in my whole life ups and downs both in terms of you know managing my fitness managing my weight all those things right have been things that I've had to work on um and I've like you know had times in my life where I was really fit and even in my 50s I would say I was like very fit like probably but I'd say that COVID has like you know I can use an excuse and be a victim but COVID has knocked me off uh you know my feet literally onto sitting in a chair all day every day in zoom so I definitely need to get ahead of that and and it's it's you know an important thing for me and it can be just simple for me I I care a little bit less about appearance now and just a lot more what you're saying like this body is my vessel right that has to take me for the next uh if I'm lucky 30 years or whatever and so how do I make that as um as positive of, of an experience as, as you said for myself and for everyone around me uh for as long as possible and so for me it's just walking it's really walking breathing stretching simple things but they make a huge difference balance I've been working a lot back on my balance I used to be into Pilates a lot um and so I think the balance stuff is really good building a bunch of side muscles and also keeping you you know um upright um and walking my dog, I have a, a really cool pit bull dog that we rescued. And just like being with her is both joyful for my mind and my body. Um, but this is an area I could definitely do better. And I'll, I'll look forward to some more coaching from you on that. <laughs> well, it, it is um, really interesting, everything you, you've shared. And thank you for that. And it's one of the things we're going to talk about later on, but we've covered it nicely now. This idea of walking, breathing, stretching. Uh, balance and grip and the ability to get up. Um, Lee and I, um, and you know Lee well, uh, she and I looked after her mother, who sadly died while we were looking after her, um, actually in hospital, but it was really so close to when we were looking after her for about three years. And, and I saw in her at about 76 that she, she lost the ability to grip so well and her balance had gone and also her ability to get herself up from seated. 
mm-hmm. she, she found that really, you know, had to haul her up. And she was very thin, um, but she just, she hadn't um, got that anymore. And, and various multiple factors were going to lead, sadly, we could see it coming to, um, to her end. So, so I think this is why I, I spend time like this morning in the garage, which I've converted into a gym and then going out for a long, you know, eight or nine K walk with the dog, with a, a client. I think walking meetings for us all, we, you and I like walking meetings. And uh, when we, when you had that retreat, it was so nice to get out and have walking meetings around forests, nature, anywhere like that, where you, you think. Um, someone was sharing with me a quote about that, the, the, you know, if you want to make a good decision, go for a walk around a lake. And, and, uh, and I think that's so true. No, th- thank you for that. And, and I think let's let's work on health span, matching lifespan and, and be proud about our longevity. And I do think when I look at you as a leader, that combination of deep experience of the year, many years, Microsoft and all those other great companies you've worked for now remotely, plus the wisdom that we acquire. I mean, the old New York uh, Jewish community have this saying, too, too soon old, too late smart. But actually... Hopefully, if you get smart enough early enough, you know, you talk about Matt having great wisdom at quite an early age. I, I don't think I had that wisdom at an early age, but I, I think I've now deliberately learned it all as much as possible. You and I love sharing books that we both read. Oh, this is a great book. Read this one. Uh, you know, Ray Dalio. And I'm reading it. Oh, I'm listening to it. Um, or, or, you know, doing courses all the time. And you're constantly learning and growing. And I think when we stop learning, that, that is when we suddenly really age. Or you retire and just stop doing anything. That's really the end is not far off because the body's going, mm-hmm. I've worked so hard, I, Rennie, all my life. That, let me just turn that horrible noise off. <laughs> um, I've, worked, I've worked so hard all my life. And now, um, you know, I'm just going to let go. But you're not because I, I know you'll always find things to do. Yeah, so, you know, I had, a, I had another manager at Microsoft who was a great manager, Barbara Gordon, and she she made it a principle to learn something new every year. And it could be something physical, like she she rescued horses, she got into horses like heavily, she like learn a new sport, and and you know later in her life, and and what she found, I think, and I love this this premise is that. It keeps you humble, but it also keeps you joyful. You, When you're learning something new, you don't have a lot of expectations for yourself that you're going to be great at it. When you've done, you know, done things like you're mastering, like just little incremental improvements that you can get, you know, after you've been doing something for a really long time. But when you're new at something, like you can have huge growth and improvement. And so the joy she got from that, I think, and the satisfaction fueled her in other parts of her life and kept her humble. And I love that. I love she was an inspiration, continues to be an inspiration to me as I try to. I just like signed up for a piano course. Like I'm learning to replay the piano, which I did when I was young, but I'm horrible, horrible at it. But it's like so cool to, you know, like just pick things back up and do something new again. So, yeah. yeah, You've you really nailed it that we, we have to keep learning and growing and moving forward. Because when we think we know it all, that's part of the problem anyway. That's where the arrogance comes in. Uh, and that humility to go, what if I'm wrong? What if I don't know? What else could I learn? How could I grow? Just like uh, sharing with you about going to Peru and doing the ayahuasca plant-based medicine and the San Pedro. People go, what, you an ex-army officer going to take drugs in South America? I guess not like that, guys. It was plant-based medicine. It was learning. It was expanding my mind. Oh, yeah, okay, whatever, man. Um, so um, thinking about your life, um, there's so much you've done, but if you were to pick out a couple of moments, one proudest, happiest moment of your life and another, the darkest one, and what you learned from both of those, because it's all about what we learn from it. Uh, what, did you, what did you learn from those experiences? Yeah, I mean, so many happy moments. It's hard to kind of pick one. And I, I, I'm very much a go forward person. So I don't look back very often. So even this exercise has been interesting, but I, I had the opportunity when I worked at Microsoft, like the great gift of being able to move to London for four years and work in our, our London office there. And it was a, such an interesting experience because it was like you had fallen from down from the moon in a different kind, like everyone I knew was not there and everyone there I didn't know. And it was just like this, like completely new, you know, life. I mean, I had to think so hard about 
even which button to push in the lift because ground floor versus first floor. Like you had to just think about all these things that you had taken for granted from living in one place forever. And I was like in my early forties when I did this. Um, so I wish I would have done it sooner, but I'm glad I got to do it at all. Um, and I think that was, that was amazing, both from a like life. I, I, I created this spreadsheet to decide whether I should take the job, like thinking it was a pure, I was still in my head in those days, thinking everything was an intellectual discussion, when actually it turned out to be this just life changing experience for me that I could have never imagined. If I had known how hard it was going to be, I might not have ever done it, right? Like, so I'm really glad I didn't know like what some of the, because you have no credit, you have no, I mean, you just aren't, you don't exist in the systems of the world, which actually was a, I mean, I'm a privileged white woman, um, but I have like a little inkling of what it might be to be an immigrant into a new country. And, And also I went to a place where the language was the same. So it's not exactly a good metaphor, but I do have, it does, did give me a lot of empathy uh, for our customers and how hard those changes are, especially when you're away. I was completely away from my family and on my own, which was hard. So, but, but beautiful as well. And what I learned about independence and confidence, um, my job there, my jobs there were so interesting and fascinating. I got to work all across Europe. I spent a lot of time in Russia, Eastern Europe, um, obviously the, the UK, which is my second home and always will be. Um, I love it so much, but I think, you know, one of the interesting jobs I had there in terms of high point was I came in to lead our support business in the UK in the early 2000s and our employee satisfaction was amazing. Like it was in the nineties, our customer satisfaction was like in the thirties. Okay. What's wrong with this picture? Right. I mean, so, and the problem was our, as I spent a lot of time with customers to understand what they were unhappy about, these were enterprise customers. But their their support people were not technical enough. They just weren't technical enough to solve a bunch of the back-end IT infrastructure uh, problems, which is what we were supporting. And, and, and that was a paid-for support service. So the expectations were high from customers. And so going back to people, the people, you know, on my teams and who were happy, but actually needed to change a lot and grow a lot and improve their technical skills and go through that change curve, that was really difficult. Like leading those teams through getting MCSE certifications, like change, raising the bar significantly of what it meant to be in the support teams there. Um, And, you know, that was, it was, it turned out like what I learned, I think I learned so many things from that, but one was like, I I created this, the strategy and the vision, but Actually, that was year one. And I kind of thought, oh, job done, I'll move on. But actually year two was the most important in terms of executing it and making it happen. So yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, just you triggered in me and I want to carry on with the story in a moment. But but I've got technical support for my company and for my wife, Lee, from a firm called Rackspace who do sort of online cloud serving. Mm -hmm. And they used to be great, uh, particularly when many of the technical experts and indeed our now son-in-law, uh, because I knew the um, uh, one of the guys who worked there, I said, look, you know, could he have some work experience? And, and he did. And he found it great because he was with really technically adept guys. But what they've done in the last four years is they've sort of outsourced it and pushed it further out. So the people, they don't understand what you're saying. They're not technically adept enough. And I'm really frustrated. And so what used to take 10 minutes to call, get the problem solved, and they were so knowledgeable. Oh, yes, it's this is just like, wow, they know so much. Now they haven't got a clue. In fact, I know more about it. And I'm really technically. And you go, this has gone downhill. What are you going to do about it? But there's no one to talk to. So I hope someone at Rackspace is listening because, guys, you got to sort it out like uh, like Renee did and, mm-hmm. and give a good technical customer support and people who speak to you as a human and, and understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, back back mm-hmm. to you. Oh, that was a yeah. great experience. What about a tough, really dark time of your life and what you learned from that? Um, I mean, I've always learned, I think, the most from the tough times in my life and uh, both personally and professionally. I think, you know, people often, I even I refer to like great managers I've had. I've had some not great managers <laughs> as well. Not many, uh, but a few. I've been lucky. Um, but even those not great managers you learn from, you learn from what you don't want to be or you don't want to do or, and I I had a, um, a leader at 
Microsoft, who is just like the most charismatic, smart leader, uh, one of the ones that I'd ever worked for. But I, I actually came to realize charisma can have a deep, dark side, right? Like I think sometimes charisma, I don't know, I shouldn't generalize, but it can be a shortcut to character, I think. And um, and I'll tell you, this leader ended up not having the character that I wanted to work around. Um, and the, I think the knock-on effects of that, like like he was wildly fun, and there was it was very much a work hard, play hard culture, um, which was really fun, but kind of fun in the sense of a carnival. Like it's great on the surface, but behind the scenes, everything that's happening to prop up the the fun wasn't always so great and definitely had knock on effects in, um, you know, in my teams and how people felt and relationships that weren't um, wholly healthy, right? Like in the workplace. So I just learned a lot about um, character. And I, I went from that role to working for Eduardo, who is who I mentioned before, and is one of the highest character family oriented people I've ever worked with in my life. And just the the peace of working in a place that really was very uh, authentic, character-driven, values-driven, like that that made all the difference in terms of how you could put your mind to work and not worry about the carnival around you, you know? So I think that even that dark moment has, not that I ever, I needed resetting because I think I always believe those things, but cemented in me, like what kind of environment I both want to work in and create for my people to be able to work into. Yeah, uh, no, f fascinating and, and learning from good times and bad times. And also knowing what we know now, you and I have talked about the sort of wisdom we've accumulated, which we've got through making mistakes, uh, as well as through successes. As someone once said, I've learned so much from the mistakes I've made. I think I'm going to go and make a few more. <laughs> like, uh, but um, you know, you're talking about your, uh, your stepson, I think is climbing one of your mountains. Which mountain is he climbing at the moment? Mount Rainier. Mm -hmm. Mount Rainier. Well, I, you know, we hope it all goes well for him. You're waiting to hear from him whether he's summited uh, this time. So it's all very exciting as yeah, we talk. Do definitely. let me know. Do let me know. Yeah. But imagine that you were back to the future in one of that DeLorean cars and you met the young Rene Yoakam at 16 or 18. Knowing what you know now at 63, what bit of advice would you give? This matters really important, do this, but don't worry about that. What would you say, do this, don't do that? Well, I think I'll, I'll preface it by saying, I don't think I would listen to myself. <laughs> I mean, as I've already described myself in this kind of like overly confident, you know, not the most humble uh, person at that stage in my life. Um, maybe that's not that uncommon. And then some, sometimes I wish for that, like just naive, naive confidence where you think you could do anything, but um, you know, I think, I think what took me longer, I, I was very successful in school and in, you know, every, everything I did. I mean, I was lucky to be smart, raised in a family that cared a lot about education. Um, I, and I, I, like, as I said, I thought those were the keys, but I was very much extrinsically motivated, right? Like I was motivated by grades, by, by winning, by, I don't know, getting into the best schools, like all those things mattered and were propping up my self-image, I think, right? As opposed to learning and failing and and really growing through those failures, as you were just saying. And so I don't think I had a growth mindset. I love to learn. I've always loved to learn. Like that's one of my strengths in the Marcus Buckingham strengths. I, I have a le learners like in my top five. So I love ideas and reading and learning, but I think I very much measured myself on if I got A's or, you know, what schools I was in or whatever, what successes I had as opposed to the failures. And so I think I would tell myself to take more risks and not care so much about the extrinsic stuff, like really think about experience and adventure and failing is okay. And I, actually the younger you fail, the better, you know, you are because you just learn so much more and you become more intrinsically motivated because it, it was until my early thirties that I really figured out what I loved and what I wanted to do, because I was always pointing to the extrinsic reward as opposed to centering on the intrinsic joy and satisfaction that I could get from things. So I, and again, I don't think I would have listened to myself, but that's what I would say. <laughs> yeah, great. And you and I were talking before about my next question, which is biggest regrets and, and then crucible moments. I think you, if I right, heard you rightly, 
there weren't so many regrets, but I'm sure there were crucible moments that shaped you, big events that happened to you, which had a profound impact on you uh, to make you the leader you are today. If you pick out one or two crucible moments, which would you choose? Well, maybe I'll do a personal one. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I, was I got divorced when I um, after I moved to London quick, fairly soon after I moved to London, and I ended up being single at a at a you know interesting point in my life like from my like early forties till my you know mid fifties so ten years or so of being single, and I I learned in that time to really cope with a lot of things like being a woman being a woman of that age being single. Um, I didn't trust my relationship like compass. So I, I did a lot of work of living alone. Like I lived alone for, I didn't date. I didn't see people for a long time because I really felt like I needed to get to know myself better. And, um, and so I, I coped with loneliness. Uh, I went through just a lot of things right to, in my own personal journey, which I think have made me so much stronger. I, I think loneliness is a human condition and being everyone experiences it at times and we're all going to have it. And so learning to not be afraid of it. Like, I think there was, this was a very big fear busting moment for me. And we'll talk more about fear later, but I think that is my, I, I focus a lot on fear versus love, fear versus, you know, purpose in work and really conquering my fears. And so I think the crucible moment for me was that, like just really getting true confidence, facing a lot of fears and learning what I could do and making decisions then not out of fear, but out of purpose. Uh, Wonderful. And and what a great story. And thank you, because I'm sure so many people are listening to this and going, you know, here's this amazing woman. She's achieved so much. How can I ever be like her? But here you are just sharing some of the things just like I relate to about some of the things that haven't worked out. And, you know, I've also in the past been divorced, but now I'm happily remarried as you're remarried. Um, and, and, you know, from experience for what you've got wrong next time, hopefully to get it right. Um, let's go around the inspiring leadership compass, which you and I know well, and the, and the eight sort of the eight, uh, what I call them, it's like competencies, the eight sort of principles of it. MQ is the first one, the moral true north um, uh, and, you know, your integrity, your values, your beliefs. Uh, if you were to pick some top two or three that you live by, uh, what happened when you let any one of them slip and how you got yourself back on true north? Yeah, I mean, I think I it, it's what I just said about fear versus love, you know, and, and love in the workplace can be purpose. You know, that's the way I think about it. And as a leader, as a person, um, when I when I let myself be driven by fear or gripped by fear, I make big mistakes (laughs) and I'm not very inspiring to work around. Right. So I think just keeping myself very focused on, you know, morally on love and purpose and going towards that. And that is a, both like a a big picture thing that I try to do through some tools that I've invented and used around setting my own intentions on a regular basis, but actually it's like every minute, like fear can grab you. Right. And, and, if you're not like vigilant and very focused on purpose. And so even in meetings or in conversations, like really sensing when, what am I reacting out of, you know, am I going towards, um, towards purpose? And that, that's what I use all the time. And I've seen you do it. I've actually seen you do it in meetings or whatever way I can see you recalibrate. Uh, And it relates me to my daughter, Bryony, who I remember, um, learned at an early age, a bit of NLP. I don't know what age uh, she might have been, maybe about 15 or 16. And, and a really good friend of mine who taught NLP, t- taught Brownie. And you could see her recalibrate and choose her mindset, which led to her success. She went on, as, as Harriet did, to get a first class honours degree at a really good university. She went to Cambridge. Harriet went to, to Bristol University. And both of them did terribly well because, I think, of their mindset. And, and I, I know that myself, I can see it diminish me when fear comes in rather than love and a sense of purpose. So I, I think that's a really important one for, for people listening. Uh, you know, I challenge everybody who's listening, you know, think about this, these moments when you're coming from a place of fear and it makes you smaller and scarcity mentality and less is more and, you know, my slice of the pie and all this, because rather than the bigger pie, we can all do well. 
um, which takes you nicely on Topeki, which is purpose. Uh, you know, your vocation, your calling, what um, your dharma, why you do what you do. What, what, what is your life purpose? Why do you work at Remitly? Why do you do what you do? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very fortunate to be in a place like I talked about in the you know beginning that's mission driven, values centric, um, and also that requires like we're solving really hard intellectual problems. It's very challenging. I have a degree in math and computer science. Like I came up in the technical side of the world, and so I, my brain needs that stimulation, um, and I get that at work. But I also get uh, heart and gut and instinct. And that's another thing about longevity is that your instincts just get more and more finely tuned and you learn how to trust them more. And so bringing all that together at Remitly has been like such a great privilege or it continues to be a great privilege. And it's certainly the best job I've ever had and the hardest job I've ever had. And I feel like my purpose here, you know, I kind of arrogantly, I think when I joined thought, oh, I'm going to, I've come from Microsoft. I you know, led 10,000 people there. Like I was like in a huge job, global job running, all of support globally. I'll um, join the small company. There were, I don't know, 500 people in support when I joined, but oh my gosh. I mean, it has been so humbling, both in terms of serving the customers we serve and also building from a small company to a big company. It's hard to develop the first principles here. Um, And so I think my purpose has become about, letting leading like using my experience and and you know i don't know time on this earth to help other people right and it isn't about me though like i'm moving beyond legacy thinking towards like i i think i started thinking well what will my legacy be and we'll get into that i know but i more think now about how do I, how do, how do I almost become a filter through which people can pass, you know, by working with me, there's things I can pass along that they help make them great. And it becomes way less about me and way more about using my abilities and powers to help them be great. Mm. Um, so I'm just thinking about things in a really different way the last couple of years. So, yeah, I, I love that. And I've seen the, the, the power that you've had in remitly in a really healthy way um the next one i was going to talk to you about was health and well-being we've talked about that and 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 longevity and things like that but you've also done a lot of great work on mental health and making sure you look after people and when they you know that they're in a difficult place and really helping them but yet at the same time not getting so soft that we don't realize we're running a business not a charity or not a, a sort of support unit in the hospital that, that we we have to at times be hard, we have to at other times be very understanding, which takes me on to the next one, which is EQ, because to have somebody with a maths and computer science degree who's been in Microsoft with the level of love and emotional intelligence you have is rare, I can tell you. I don't find many of them. Mm-hmm. You, you've met some special ones and you've been influenced by them, you mentioned them. But But what's a top tip you'd give about developing eq because it doesn't come naturally to a lot of the people you're working with particularly engineers you know some have it some don't um but if if there's those people listening who are very high iq but they've not yet developed their eq what's a top tip to develop eq about rapport influence that kind of stuff listening yeah i mean i think it starts with listening as you just said and and actually jonathan a lot of things that you've taught me through the thinking environment i think are actually really good processes and tools for improving your EQ. Um, and, you know, if, if Jonathan, if, if you haven't heard about uh, the thinking environment before, it's based on some work by a woman named Nancy Klein. And there's, you know, several books she's written. And the one I like the most is More Time to Think. But I think her latest one is called The Promise That Changes Everything About Not Interrupting. And there's these 10 components of a, of a thinking environment, which is all about generating, like built, believing that people are great and smart. And, and uh, by giving them space to think, they're going to generate new ideas that are better than what they could do alone. And by you, the power of your listening, you're actually helping them generate ideas and I think the practices in that book and the, the 10 components of the thinking environment have really helped me even increase my EQ and I think are a great guide for thinking about, you know, for people like building EQ. Um, there's amazing stuff mm. there that's like kind of process-y in a way, like there's a process, but it is deep and hard and, um, and beautiful. 
Yeah, no, it's, it's lovely to see when I can see you doing it and I see you use it and it comes very naturally to you. Um, it, it's, it's part of, you know, you, you are actually, you're being a thinking environment. And, and one of the things links onto next is CQ, which is collaborative cognitive cultural intelligence, this idea of the team and the collective. I'm, I'm listening to this interesting book about the biology of belief, which I think I mentioned to you before, this idea of Darwin's theory of evolution was uh, overtaken by 50 years by Lamarck. Darwin was about competition. Lamarck was about collaboration. And you're very much more, even though you've been in a very competitive environment, and you have to be, you're in business, but you really come from a place of the looking for the collaboration, the one team of peers who are all helping. And you and I are saying, you know, that's great at the, the most senior level, but what about the next level down? They're all working with a hub and spoke kind of model, all coming to the leader who's on the top team, but they're not really working with each other in a collective. Um, mm -hmm. What's your sense of how to develop that cultural intelligence, uh, which also includes very importantly, which is a big part of, of what you do at Remitly, the diversity, equality and inclusion. But what about just because we can talk a lot about that. That's a, one that's been well talked about. What about this collective, collaborative cultural intelligence that you're getting working well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is listening and really coming from a place of humility and learning and curiosity. You know, those qualities make you uh, appreciate people. Um, knowing your own strengths and then realizing and, and deeply appreciating the strengths of other people that's different, that can, you know, contribute to a whole team. So have, building a diverse team through a variety of lived experiences, genders, races, ethnicities, country backgrounds, all those things make a much more rich uh, output and product and also rich environment to grow and learn in as an employee. I think, you know, um, I, I, I highly, and I, I think everyone believes this now, travel, living abroad, living in the UK, and then using that as a base to travel a lot in Western Europe. I've traveled a lot in the Far East uh, as well with my work. And so I think travel has opened my mind and made me made me the person I am today. Like I, I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily feel purely American. I feel, you know, I certainly never became British or European, but I am, I feel more global in the way that I think about who I am as a citizen and, and that, and certainly with the diversity we have at Remitly, both in terms of gender blend and also I think we're, you know, uh, you know, highly, highly diverse in the cultures and ethnicities uh, that, that work at the company because we're working hard to represent our customer base as well. And that like brings a beautiful collaborative culture. Not easy, not easy, no. um, but big challenges, but huge opportunities for us to grow together. So yeah, you, more than more than any other company I've come across, you do live your values. Okay, we we're always got work, and you're always looking to ways to improve. And people are quick to point out all our faults, and that you know it's your job to make me happy. Well, you know, that's part of the culture today. And maybe it's not that case. You know, you take personal accountability, you can control your thoughts and your actions. So think about what you can control. And, you know, I've talked about that. Um, it was great that you traveled to China and you, and you told me about Ray Dalio's latest book, which I'm listening to now, thanks to you. Um, resilience is the next one. Gosh, you know, if there's ever a inspiring female leader who's been resilient at all the things you've been through and the travel and the places you've done, the firms you've done, taking on an almost impossible task and turning things around. It's, it's you, Renee. How have you picked yourself up? What would be the, the top tip about picking yourself up in times of adversity and, and giving you the resilience to get through really tough times? Well, I, f I find this weird energy comes in times of adversity for me. Like I, those are my highest growth times for sure. And at first, I again, I was afraid of them. It scared me, right? And But I've learned, I don't know is it what Oprah says, like you have to go through things. You can't go around them. And by going through things, you build the confidence that you can get through tough things. So when the next tough thing comes, you can, it's scary, but you just go, okay, well, you use the confidence that you've built in the past to know that you're going to have the energy and resilience to get through the next thing. And that resilience just keeps growing, I think, exponentially. So in a way, welcoming problems and challenges, because they do bring a, I don't know if this happens to you, but I honestly get this like alive 
aliveness in in the hard, in hard times that is it makes me read i read all kinds of self help books or business books or you know i list i talk to other people and i'm curious about how they've dealt with those situations and I think my mind is more humble and open in those moments of pain and fear both personally and at work and that just builds resilience over time yeah, beautifully put and and i think there's such wisdom in what you just said there which i'm I'm looking forward to including that in the book, uh, CEOs and Teams, which I'm in the early stages of writing, CEOs and Teams Inspiring Leadership, and, and you certainly will be in there. But one of the things you and I shared is what we call the 45, between the graph with the y-axis being the challenges you face in life, and the x-axis being your competence, your ability to cope with them. And the 45 degree line between the two of them is when your competence matches the challenge you're thrown at. And being on the line is fine, but, but you're... You know, it's almost a bit of cyclosclerosis, a hardening of the attitude. You're getting used to it. You're getting a bit complacent. Below it, you're not at all stretched and you're very bored. And there's a number of people I know at times, they say they're busy, but they're really a bit bored and not much change. But above it, that's where you don't know. You've never done it before. Your, your competences and skills and experience are now being stretched to an area that's scary. You might fail. You, you haven't done it before. What, what happens then? But as you and I have shared, that's where the growth happens, living above the 45. And yeah. I think you've spent much of your life, as I have, living above the 45. And I think you will do till the day till the day we're at your funeral, which will be in many years' bit, time. Yeah, I'm a little bit addicted to that. Like, I love that. I, am, I feel most alive above the 45. Maybe that sounds that's like it. I feel most alive above the 45. <laughs> but I definitely do feel most alive there. And I, 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 cr- I crave change and, and thrive in that. And I, I genuinely do. And maybe sometimes to a downside, to a Hogan downside of like, maybe if, the, if things are boring, I create a little change. I create problems so that may not always be good. But yeah, me, in a, me below the 45 is not a good not no, a thing. no, no, you become mischievous as we as we know. Yeah. But anyway, um, brand next. Uh, you've um, learned so much over the years. At some stage, you and I are going to do a 360 on on you and what everybody else is saying about you, as your colleagues Matt and Josh have. Um, but what have you learned in the past when you've done 360 in different organizations? And if there was one area that you've learned from, because you're always look listening for, for feedback, you just you just constantly having that that willingness to be open to it if there was one thing what what is it you've learned that you're working on yeah I mean I I mean I just did a a 360 a couple years ago they're hard I mean I think they're very humbling right because it's difficult to please all constituents and but you learn so much uh from them and I think you know the thing the thing I've continued to learn is just being authentic like again tapping into purpose and being who I am I'm not I'm not I'm not the leader that other people are. I'm just my own leader in the way that I can be. And by connecting, by by being very purposeful about who I'm connecting with. So then I can connect well with my managers, with my peers, with the people that work for me and that I get to serve on my teams with customers. You know, all of that means like the more I can be authentic and create a thinking environment for them, be a thinking environment for them, then that's my biggest learning, right? Is like, that's when I can be successful um, is focusing on them and, and what they need for me um, in those moments. Right. So beautifully put. And and which leads us nicely on to the eighth uh, of the legacies uh, of the principles and and competencies, which is legacy quotient, uh, legacy stewardship, leaving things better than you found them, which you've certainly done in the four years. I didn't realize it's been four years. I remember talking with Matt about, we've got this amazing person. She's called Renny Yoakum. She's just about to join us. She is incredible. And uh, he was so excited about finding you and working with you. And you two have worked so well together, you and Josh as well. Um, legacy, you're talking about that, um, this filter um, that you can use your abilities and your power to help others. Uh, what else would you say about legacy and particularly stewardship? It's like a different thing, leaving things better than you found it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we've talked about it kind of a lot. I think the thing I would add maybe is what I've learned and 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 continue to strive to be good at is that you can be direct and give feedback, like like constructive feedback and direct feedback, 
and you can be kind. And those are not in conflict. And I've been in places where I don't think everyone always believed that, right? But but I, it's definitely true at Remitly. And I feel like it, through the combination of being direct, like you have to keep the courage. It's sort of like um, the radical candor quadrants. Like you've got to keep the courage and the, uh, the accountability uh, for people to be direct because people need to hear directly and have a mirror held up to them at times. But you've got to do it from a place of love and kindness about them um, and also clear your own intentions, like make sure it isn't your own agenda or your own attention, intentions that are driving the feedback. And so I, I don't know, if, I guess if there's a legacy, it's that feedback is a really good thing and an important thing and putting a lot of work and effort into giving it in well-intentioned, loving, kind ways without being ruinously empathetic is, is a super important skill and one that I think is important for us to be successful at Remitly for sure. I think you might've gone on mute, Jonathan. I'm, yeah. Yeah, sorry. I was happily chatting to myself. Uh, ruinously empathetic was a lovely term that, that you've talked about uh, from a quadrant that you have. Remind people where they can find that four box matrix online. Yeah, it's in the book called Radical Candor. And oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the author's name right now. Kim something. She's an amazing um, person. But the that that the quadrant of like, again, it's like the x-axis, I think, is accountability. Uh, the y-axis is love and care and how you live the top, the top right is called, she calls radical candor, where the intersection of those two things at their highest purpose, but where you, um, you care only, uh, but you don't hold people accountable is called ruinously empathetic. And that's where, you know, people, you can wallow with people in their problems or, uh, you know, oh, like over empathize and not really help them, you know, um, move forward and get the feedback that they need in order to grow. And so anyway, each of those quadrants has some interesting ups and downs and I think is worth worth studying. And um, I don't I'm not love the radical candor word. I love the word candor, though. And and I love the intersection of love and accountability. I think that's yeah. really important. no, I, I agree. And it's made quite an impact on me. And as you described, when people have, have got it slightly amiss, it does make complete sense when you have someone and I've met various leaders where they're ruinously empathetic and think they're being kind, but actually um, that they're, they're really helping people get off the hook and, and not face their own accountability. That idea that of the closed loop that um, Jack Welsh talked about that, you know, by all means uh, delegate and, uh, and empower, but actually bring it round with a review point uh, to evaluate the decisions and go, have you done it? And if you've not, if you're not embarrassed about your poor performance, I'm embarrassed for you. What are you going to do about it? Because you are responsible, the adult to adult in the, the um, you know, parent adult child. Very interesting. Now, the other thing that you've got a wealth of experience, and we've talked about this at length, and, and we, we work together so closely to help teams develop, you and I, particularly in, in Remitly, is this idea of executive teams or teams at any level. And your experience about turning around a team from where it's got a bit toxic and you've got to make it high performing what's been your wisdom and experience about turning it from toxic to high performing yeah i mean i think the the thing about executive teams is they're just people <laughs> and we're all just individuals with our own like strengths and flaws right and so being able to like look and be a member an active member of an executive team and i think moving, moving the toxic, first of all, being really clear about both mission and values and holding a really high bar, even higher bar at the executive team for living and not just role modeling to show off, but actually living in the hardest moments, our values and being able to talk about them uh, a lot. I think that's an important piece. Um, I think a second piece is vulnerability. Like we, we work really hard at leading, not, not coming in and selling to our peers what's going well in our organizations, but really bringing the biggest, toughest problems that we're facing and we don't know how to solve with humility to what we call a wisdom council of the team to say like, hey, I'm still accountable for this, but I would love 
each of your feedback and wisdom about an advice that you would give me or thoughts or new pieces of data you may have that I don't have, because this is the problem that's keeping me up at night. And here's the consequences to the whole company if we don't get it right. And so help me, you know, how can you help me? And I will take that feedback. And again, I'm accountable for going away and figuring out what's useful and what's not useful and uh, what will apply. And you will hold me accountable for improving the results. But we lead with that, which takes great confidence and courage and vulnerability versus leading with what we think our teams are doing great. Right. Mm -hmm. And by, by, by that, I think it kills a lot of toxicity because there isn't competition. There isn't, um, there isn't, I don't know, posing. There's just a lot of humble help and teamwork that comes out of helping each other with your problems while not over-functioning and trying to take over their world, you know? Uh, I hadn't thought of it in that way. And I think it's beautiful the way you described everything that you just said in that bit about executive teams, the high bar, the vulnerability, and the courage that's required, but taking accountability. But this key point at the end you just said there really landed with me that it does kill competition, it does kill the posing, the ego, and the toxicity, because it it can't really, it almost like, it creates a a psychologically safe environment, which at the same time sucks out the poisonous gases. It's almost like it creates the room where it's filled, the good stuff comes in and expels the bad stuff, so people think well for themselves, and they know that their colleagues are really listening to ignite their thinking, rather than listening to respond as they used to do when I was in IBM or listening to score a point or talking over. Someone was saying to me the other day, uh, this colleague of mine in America, he's really good, but he does talk over people so much and he doesn't really listen. And and that's a killer. It's an absolute killer. So thank you for that. You've captured it beautifully. Last two things, we're gonna do a favorite book and then we're gonna do two minute minute top tip. And as always, you and I are spot on time. So a favorite book on leadership, Renee, uh, why should people listen to it or read it? As you know, I'm dyslexic, so I love listening to books. I'm always looking for those who are audios as well. Uh, And what benefit will they get from listening to this particular or reading this particular book? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's just so many. I read voraciously. I mean, from when I was a little girl, I've been a voracious leader. Now I'm just obsessed with business books. So I read so many. That's what you and I talk about a ton. Um, I've already talked about a few. Um, There's a great book called Personal History that um, was really formative to me. Catherine Graham's story, uh, she, her family owned the Washington Post. She was well-educated, but not, didn't work until her forties and took on the whole paper and like just what she became an icon and actually a mentor for Bill Gates and some other for Warren Buffett, a you know, contemporary of Warren Buffett. She's amazing. But I also think there's um, the work by Marcus Buckingham, like just the body of work by Marcus Buckingham, I love and got deeply into actually when I was in the UK and the Strengths Finders work. And I feel like it's become seminal to like who I am as a leader, which is believing everyone has great strengths and finding the role that where they can play to their strengths. And your strengths is both what you're good at and what gives you energy, the intersection of those two things. It's not just what you're good at, but it's also what gives you energy. And surrounding yourself with people who have strengths different from yours, because they'll get energy from things you're not good at. And honestly, like, like genuinely appreciating them for what they bring to the table, not just tolerating them because they're so different, but genuinely needing them and appreciating them for what they bring to the table. So that whole, yeah, I would say the whole body of work that Marcus Buckingham has done around strengths has been, I think, in leadership, like one of the biggest changes in leadership where you used to focus on your weaknesses only and and now really fo- the, the ROI you get out of playing to your strengths is so much higher than focusing on your weaknesses so spot spot on and and um interesting I'm still still thinking about uh with this uh, world-class uh speaking uh, coaching uh, certification I'm doing at the moment uh, in preparation to help you and others uh, but I'm still thinking about these little catchy phrases like I'm most alive above the 45. I still love it. I'm going to give you the credit for that one. Um, but Strength Finder by Marcus Buckingham. I, I remember doing it, oh gosh, you know, when it first came out and thought it was revolutionary for me. And I went, I've been brought up in the military where, you know, your sergeant major would just shred you, you know, sir, what's your village doing for an idiot? Now you're here. 
you know, and like you know, all this just constant criticism and running down and gaslighting and just making you feel bad about yourself. And, the, and always, you know, done all these great things, but, blah, 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 you know, and everything before the but is rubbish because, you know, it's, you, you don't hear the good things. You just hear the but and then the, the long list of your faults. So to actually have something like Strength Finder, I'm going to go online. I think there's a free survey you can do mm-hmm. and retake the Strength Finder because I, th- I do think we have some key ones, but I think as life experiences, and boy, I've had a few and you've had a few, have shaped me. I think now at 60, my strength finder may be very different from how it was mm. at 50, mm. 55. So mm. I'm gonna, you've just made me think I'll do that again. Uh, Renee, this is wonderful. Let's um, finally introduce yourself once more. Uh, tell tell the, uh, the people listening about what you do in the organization, what it does, and then share your two minute top leadership tip. And we'll finish just after that. Yes. So my name is Renee Yoakum, and I'm so proud to work for Remitly in the role of uh, EVP for customer and culture, which is a beautiful intersection of a job I'm lucky to have. And I think my top tip is around fear versus love or in the workplace, fear versus purpose. Um, and I think it's one of those things that's like really easy to say and really hard to do, um, but it requires every day, a lot of work for you as an, as a leader to know what your fears are and to work hard to do some practices that help you conquer those fears. Because I think people won't follow, maybe people do follow, you know, in autocratic places, I guess people do follow fearful leaders. That's not the kind of leader I want to be at all. I want to be a leader who paints a picture about where we're going and helps everyone be the best they can be to get on that journey. Um, and I think in order for me to be that kind of an authentic purpose-driven leader, I have a lot of work that I have to do. So number one, understanding my own fears and my own intentions, like what are my intentions of where we're going, using some daily practices to make sure my mindset is in the right place every day. Like this is this is a day-by-day and a minute-by-minute journey. Um, and that includes meditation, walking, breathing, all those things that really do keep my mind strong and my spirit and will in the right place. And then in the moment, like doing a check-in with yourself, like, where am I? Am I above the line in terms of being curious and open and genuine and listening? Or am I below the line and being fearful and critical and scarcity mindset, right? And like, we all, we're human. We go above and below the line every day, a thousand times. So just knowing where you are and being able to have the practices that bring you back there, which mostly for me include breathing and just asking myself, who do I need to be in this moment and being intentional about that. Fantastic. Renee Yacom um, uh, from Remitly, wonderful having you on the program. Thank you for your time. You continue to inspire people and make a difference and leave your legacy. Thank you very much. My privilege. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.